Well, good morning again. Would you please turn to the text for our message this morning, John chapter 5, verses 22 to 27. John chapter 5, 22 to 27. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. And may God the Holy Spirit grant us the wisdom to understand the text and the message before us. Now, I've handed out some uh, outlines for you to help you follow along. Uh, this is a, an important topic to understand fully. There's a lot of confusion concerning these judgments, and I'd like to take some time this morning and sort them all out for us. Notice, please, first of all, that there are two irrefutable facts in these two passages concerning the justice of God, which we just read. Number one, all judgment has been given or committed to the Son of God. Verse 22, Jesus Christ is the absolute judge. He has exclusive rights to all major judgments that are going to yet take place. Number two, and this same Jesus has been given sole authority to execute that judgment. He and he alone is the absolute executor of God's justice. Verse 27. I would like, therefore, to take a brief look at the five judgments presented in Scripture and see how they are all centered around the person of Christ. He is crucial to each one of these judgments, for without him there can be no justice. If therefore behooves us to take heed, Christian and non-Christian alike, because everyone will someday stand before God and give a personal account to him. So this brings us now to the first judgment mentioned in the New Testament, and that is the judgment of the believer's sins. John 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He that believeth, he that believeth, he that believeth 
is the central thrust of the gospel of salvation. We must believe in order to be saved. There is no other way. We must believe that God sent his son Jesus Christ to the cross of Calvary to die for the sins of the world, that his very own son bore the penalty of our sins in our place, and that the shed blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We must believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and after three days rose again, verifying that God was satisfied once and for all by his son's sacrifice for our sins. Our sins, your sins, mine, every last one of them, every sin that you and I have ever committed or will ever commit has already been judged and punished in Christ at Calvary. And as a result, every believer, every Christian has now passed from death onto life. This is present salvation. We have been saved from the penalty of sin because Christ himself has paid for our sins. He was judged in the believer's place, and as a result, the believer will never again come into judgment or condemnation. Because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty, and on the grounds of his substitutional death, the believer is now separated forever from his sins. Psalm 103.12 explains it this way. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. The Bible also teaches that the sins of the believer, because of Calvary, have all been blotted out, and that God will remember them no more. Isaiah 43.25 tells us, I... Even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. This is so because our Lord suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, so that we might be saved and never come into judgment as sinners. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Thus, we as Christians will never be condemned with the world because Christ was condemned in our place. He was made to be sin for us, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he, that is God, hath made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Furthermore, our blessed Savior was also made a curse for us on the cross, and that way he was able to redeem us from the curse of the law. As the Apostle Paul so clearly explains to us, In Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. 
And that, of course, comes from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. And finally, the believer will not come into judgment because Christ put away our sins by his sacrifice and our sins have been purged. And when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3 That is why we must preach Christ crucified to a lost and dying world, because outside of Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no hope of salvation. Now, we are often asked as Christians, you mean anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord will go to hell? That is exactly what the Bible teaches. John three thirty six. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And then we read in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 12, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So the first judgment in Scripture has already taken place. God has already judged the sins of the world on the cross of Calvary once and for all. Now please listen to this carefully. God has already judged the sins of the world on the cross of Calvary. He will not judge those same sins ever again. Christ was already punished for all of them. God will not punish his son for them a second or a third time, as some religions teach. Neither will God punish the sinner or the saint for those same sins at a later date, because Christ already bore that punishment. Either we accept Christ as our sin-bearer now and become reconciled to God, or we don't accept Christ as our sin-bearer and remain separated from God for all eternity. Salvation is a matter of grace on God's part. He freely offers salvation as a gift to everyone because no one can possibly earn it or deserve it. The offer of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ is a gift from God. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. Dear friend, I ask you, are you saved this morning? Are you in Christ or are you still outside of Christ? There is no middle ground. And if you're not sure, why not receive him now while there is still yet time? Next, we come to the second judgment mentioned in the Bible, which is the judgment of the believer's self or 
self-judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 to 32. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Oh boy, this is a tough one. There are many views on this one, but only one correct interpretation. Let me approach it this way. Christians are to judge themselves, not one another. A Christian is to examine himself to see whether he is in the faith, says the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5. We are to judge our own actions, words, thoughts in light of Scripture. Do we live, line up with God's will as revealed in Scripture? Obedience to Scripture is always contrary to self. Self will always take the opposite approach. All Christians readily admit the importance of obeying the Word of God, but a very small portion of Christians actually put that into practice. And so a good portion of Christians end up being chastened or judged by the Lord himself. When we fail to judge ourselves, and that I am sad to say is too often, then the Lord must deal with us personally. We become, so to speak, the objects of divine chastisement because we haven't or we won't judge ourselves. It is so that we as Christians will not be condemned with the rest of the world. The world or the unsaved man is going to be dealt with in the final day of judgment, whereas the child of God is judged by God in this life. Sometimes the Christian looks around and says to himself, I don't know why I'm faced with all of this hardship and suffering. It seems that the Lord is putting me through all of this, and yet my enemies seem to be prospering and in good health. It is so discouraging. I like what uh, Ironside once said concerning this particular issue. Quote, the worldling gets all his heaven right here. The Christian gets all the sorrow, all the trouble, all the tears he will ever have right here where he is chastened of the Lord and comes under the rod and is beaten for his naughtiness when God has to deal with him here. That is in order that he should not be condemned with the world. And when he gets to heaven, there will be no punishment. End of quote. Therefore, in light of that, we should live in such a way that everything that we do, we should do to the glory of God. So the second judgment, judgment of self for believers, is an ongoing judgment and is a daily judgment. The third judgment mentioned in Scripture is future. 
The first was passed, Calvary, where God judged the penalty for sins. The second is present, the ongoing judgment of self by believers. Now, the third, which is judgment for believers' works, is future and will take place in heaven after the rapture before the judgment seat of Christ. There, Christ will judge the believers' works. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And then another passage, which deals with the same event, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Notice, please, some key words here. First of all, it is our works that will be judged, not our sins. Our sins have already been judged and disposed of once and for all at Calvary. But here we are talking about works and our service for Christ. Secondly, the issue is sort or type rather than how much or how many. It is the character of our works and the motives behind our service that counts. That is what the Lord is really interested in. Was it done in the flesh for self-glory or was it done in the spirit for the glory of Christ? Oh, that more Christians would examine their works and service more seriously. I fear there is an awful lot of activity going about in churches these days, but not all of it is to the glory of Christ. There is much time and energy devoted today by Christians trying to accomplish great things for God, while the very little and important daily things are being neglected. But according to the above passage, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 14 to 15, all our works and services for Christ will be judged before his judgment seat someday. And Christ, who sees the heart and knows every thought and word ever spoken, will not be deceived. He will judge in truth, and many works will be burnt up because they were not properly built or with the proper materials. They were built with wood, hay, and stubble instead of gold, silver, and precious stones. We remember that touching scene in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 9, about the woman who poured out a box of very costly spikenard ointment 
on our Savior's head in preparation for his burial. Those who witnessed the scene were mildly upset and felt that she had wasted the ointment, but they did not see her heart. They did not see that this was her way of worshiping her Savior. That was all she could do to honor him and to express her love for him. Jesus received it and commended her most highly in verse 8. He said about her works, she hath done what she could. Then there was another example in the Old Testament. King David wanted very badly to build a temple for the Lord. But because David had shed blood and had been a man of war, the Lord denied him that privilege. But do you remember what the Lord said to David in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 18? Thou didst well that it was in thine heart. Oh, dearly beloved, do not be discouraged. There are many dear saints who, because of physical infirmities, are not able to serve the Lord in the way that others can. Nevertheless, do what you are able. There are those others who may be burdened with the care of aged and helpless parents or other family members. Do not despair. Care for them. Meet their needs. Do it with a pure heart as unto the Lord and remember his words. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. I have heard many a dear Christian wife or mother bemoan her service for the Lord because she was not able to do as much as her husband or as much as the other ladies. She was stuck, so to speak, in the home, tending her family. O oh, sisters, be encouraged. The Lord is not interested in how much, but how well you have done what he has asked you to do. And if it has been done for Christ, then someday he will say, She hath done what she could, or thou didst well, that it was in thine heart. Oh, that we would judge ourselves more often, so that when we stand before our Savior, we would have very little to be burned as dross. But the Lord is gracious and ever-giving. What remains after the fire is refined. It is those works that were built with proper motives and in the Spirit and all to the glory of God. For those there will be rewards. We must move on. The fourth judgment mentioned in Scripture is also future. It is the judgment of the nations which will take place on earth in Jerusalem. We see this particular judgment in quite some detail in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. And we can look at that uh, at uh, the first three verses uh, in particular, Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to 46. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, 
Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate one from another, as a shepherd separateth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. The Lord will divide the nations, the Gentile nations, into two categories, into sheep and into goats. Now, sheep, of course, always speak of the Lord's people in Scripture. So those who belong to the Lord are pictured as sheep, while he is pictured as their shepherd. Then there are also the goats. They will not have the same relationship to the Lord. They will be those who will eventually be cast into everlasting punishment. Verse 46. But there is also a third group, a third category, the brethren or the Jews. Those Jews who came through the great tribulation, those 144,000 supernaturally sealed and protected by God. These will be the brethren. Don't forget that the great tribulation has just ended. The battle at Armageddon has already taken place. The Lord has returned with his church and has defeated the Antichrist and all his forces. The Lord is now executing his rightful judgment as the judge of all the nations. Before he fully establishes his millennial reign here on this earth, and before Israel's glory is restored, and before the curse is completely lifted, he must judge the nations first. And the test in this judgment will be the treatment accorded to the Jews or his brethren. These are they that have carried the message of Christ, and all who showed a response to their message reflected that in their treatment of the Jews during those tribulation years. And so faith without works is dead. The goats will have no good works to prove their faith. They professed. They will eventually be cast into the fire. There is so much more we can still say on this particular judgment, but time is of essence here and does not permit us to continue any further. So we finally come now to our fifth and final judgment in Scripture, the most awesome in all of Scripture. It is the white throne judgment seat, which will take place after the Lord destroys by fire the first earth and the first heaven. It is going to take place in what we best know as outer space. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the, the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. 
and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Notice, please, that this is the very last judgment in all of Scripture. Notice also that the own, only the lost will stand before this judgment throne. And finally, notice who the judge is not. It is not Joseph Smith, whom the Mormons claim will judge the souls with God. It is not Mohammed, who has led billions to a lost estate. It is not Buddha, it is not Krishna, it is not any of the popes of the Catholic Church, nor the myriad of false founders of false religions. It is Jesus Christ of the Bible who will preside over this throne. It is the man of Calvary whom so many have rejected and refused to bow the knee to. Now they shall see him as he is, the glorified, resurrected Christ to whom all power and authority has always been given. He will judge righteously. He will judge in truth. He will judge the motives and the secrets of the heart. He will show by their works, which they have so trusted in, that they have completely missed the mark. Books will be opened, books with very accurate details, reflecting each man's works. The Bible mentions several different books, and so it is my conviction that God will use all of these books on this awesome day. There will be no omissions, there will be no additions, only the truth. There will be, first of all, the book of remembrance, which Malachi speaks about in Malachi 3.16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Then there will be a second book opened, the Book of Conscience which Romans 1, 18, 19 alludes to. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. And then there will be a third book opened, the Book of Suffering, or the book of tears. Psalm 56, 8. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Dearly beloved, God knows the suffering of his saints. He knows their fears, their hurt, their abuse at the hands of the ungodly. 
Not a single tear shed by one of his precious blood-bought saints will go unnoticed. All those tears shed for the souls of lost ones and tears caused by the suffering imposed upon them by lost ones who chose to ignore the call to repentance will be carefully recorded and brought as a testimony against them on that awful day. Then there will be a fourth book, the book that God has written and preserved for us to reveal his Son, Jesus Christ, as the only Savior of mankind. It will be the Bible, the book that has been maligned, ridiculed, neglected, and scoffed at. The Bible will be opened as a measuring stick of God's holy and perfect standard, and all who stand there in light of its pure standard will be found guilty, condemned, and without a Savior. As it is written, says Romans 3, 10 to 11, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. And then in Romans 3, 23 and 28, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And finally, a fifth book will be opened, the Book of Life, which is mentioned here in Revelation 20.12. And whosoever was not found in that Book of Life will be cast into the lake of fire. The Bible teaches that every name was written in the Book of Life before the foundation of the world, Revelation 17.8. Such is the grace of God. Everyone has the opportunity to be saved, to receive Christ. But not everyone will choose to trust Christ. It is the scriptures teaching that God blots out names from the book of life. Deuteronomy 29:20 and Exodus 32, 32 to 20 uh, to 33. God, who sees the end from the beginning, comes to a point where, so to speak, the last straw is broken, and he blots a name out of his book. At that point, beyond which he can no longer strive with the rebellious heart. Oh, I trust that there is none here this morning or those listening by sermon audio whose name has been blotted out of the book of life. God, who sees the future, wants to save you all. And he is able to save you no matter what your circumstances may be. But you have to respond to his offer of grace. You have to receive his gift of salvation. He cannot <clears throat> and will not save anyone against their will. Oh, dear friends, receive his son now if you haven't done so already. For this humble man of Calvary came the first time to save his people from their sins, we're told in Matthew 1.21. But the next time he returns, he will return as the righteous judge of all the earth with all authority and power to execute justice upon 
a sinful world. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee so much for this time together as thy saints and for this precious book, the Holy Bible. For were it not for this book, Lord, we would still be lost today and headed for a Christless eternity. Father, we pray that thou might use each and every one of us in some small way to reach those who are still lost and dying. Give us the boldness of spirit to speak to them about the need to repent and to trust Jesus Christ based on what he has accomplished on their behalf at Calvary's cross. Part us now with thy blessings, we pray, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together next door, next day, next Lord's Day, around his table. For we do ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.